0: Book Three, Chapter Twelve of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simone. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. An hour later the landlady at miss quilt's lodgings was lost in astonishment and the clamorous tongues of children were in a state of ungovernable revolt unforeseen circumstances had suddenly obliged the tenant of the first floor to terminate the occupation of her apartments and to go to london that day by the eleven o'clock train Please to have a fly at the door at half past ten said miss quilt as the amazed landlady followed her upstairs and excuse me you good creature if I beg and pray not to be disturbed till the fly comes once inside the room she locked the door and then opened her writing desk now for my letter to the major she said how shall I word it a moment's consideration apparently decided her Searching through her collection of pens, she carefully selected the worst that could be found, and began the letter by writing the date of the day on a soiled sheet of notepaper, in crooked, clumsy characters, which ended in a blot, made purposely with the feather of the pen. Pausing, sometimes to think a little, sometimes to make another blot, she completed the letter in these words. Honoured Sir, It is on my conscience to tell you something, which I think you ought to know. You ought to know of the goings-on of Miss, your daughter, with young Mr. Armadale. I wish you to make sure, and, what is more, I advise you to be quick about it, if she is going the way you want her to go, when she takes her morning walk before breakfast. I scorn to make mischief, where there is true love on both sides. But I don't think the young man means truly by miss. What I mean is, I think means only has his fancy. Another person, who shall be nameless betwixt us, has his true heart. Please to pardon my not putting my name. I am only a humble person, and I might get me into trouble. This is all at present, dear sir, from yours. A well-wisher. ''There!'' said Miss Quilt, as she followed the letter up. ''If I had been a professed novelist, I could hardly have written more naturally in the character of a servant than that.'' She wrote the necessary address to Major Milroy, looked admiringly for the last time at the coarse and clumsy writing which her own delicate hand had produced, and rose to post the letter herself. Before she entered next on serious business of backing up. Curious! she thought when the letter had been posted and she was back again making her traveling preparations in her own room. Here I am running headlong into a frightful risk, and I never was in better spirits in my life. The boxes were ready when the fly was at the door, and Miss quilt was equipped as becomingly as usual in her neat travelling costume. The thick veil, which she was accustomed to wear in London, appeared on her country straw bonnet for the first time. One meets such rude men occasionally in the railway, she said to the landlady, and though I dress quietly, my hair is so very remarkable. She was a little paler than usual, but she had never been so sweet-tempered and engaging, so gracefully cordial and friendly as now when the moment of departure had come. The simple people of the house were quite moved at taking leave of her. She insisted on shaking hands with the landlord, on speaking to him in her prettiest way and sunning him in her brightest smiles. Come, she said to the landlady, you have been so kind, you have been so like a mother to me, you must give me a kiss at parting. She embraced children all together in the lamp, with a mixture of humour and tenderness delightful to see, and left a shilling among them to buy a cake. "'If I was only rich enough to make it a sovereign,' she whispered to the mother, "'how glad I should be!' The awkward lad who ran on errands stood waiting at the fly-door. He was clumsy, he was frowzy, he had a gaping mouth and a turn up nose. But the uh, inevitable female delight in being charming accepted him, for all that, in the character of a last chance. You dear dingy John, she said kindly, at the carriage door, I am so poor I have only sixpence to give you. With my very best wishes. Take my advice, John. Grow to be a fine man and find yourself a nice sweetheart. Thank you for a thousand times. She gave him a friendly little pat on the cheek, with two of her gloved fingers, and smiled, and nodded, and got into the fly. ''Armadale next,'' she said to herself as the carriage drove off. Ellen's anxiety not to miss the train had brought him to the station in better time than usual. After taking his ticket and putting his portmanteau under the porter's charge, he was pacing the platform and thinking of Neely when he heard the rustling of a lady's dress behind him and, turning around to look, found himself face to face with Miss Quilt. There was no escaping her this time. The station wall was on his right hand and the line was on his left. A tunnel was behind him, and Miss Quilt was in front, inquiring in her sweetest tones whether Mr. Armadale was going to London. Ellen colored scarlet with vexation and surprise. There he was obviously waiting for the train, and there was his portmanteau close by, with his name on it, already labeled for London. What answer but a true one could he make after that? Could he let the train go without him, and lose the precious hour so vitally important to Neely and himself? Impossible. Alan helplessly confirmed the printed statement on his portmanteau, and heartily wished himself at the other end of the world as he said the words. How very fortunate, rejoiced Miss Gwilt. I am going to London, too. Might I ask you, Mr. Armadale? as you seem to be quite alone, to be my escort on the journey. Alan looked at the little assembly of travellers and travellers' friends collected on the platform near the booking office door. They were all Thorpe Ambrose people. He was probably known by sight, and Miss quilt was probably known by sight to every one of them. In sheer desperation, exitating more awkwardly than ever, he produced his cigar case. I should be delighted, he said, with an embarrassment which was almost an insult under the circumstances. But I am what people who get sick over a cigar call a slave to smoking. I delight in smoking, said Miss Quilt, with undiminished vivacity and good humor. It's one of the privileges of the man which I have always envied. I'm afraid, Mr. Armadale, you must think I'm forcing myself on you. It certainly looks like it. The real truth is, I want particularly to say a word to you in private about Mr. Midwinter. The train came up at the same moment. Setting Winter out of the question, the common distances of politeness left Ellen no alternative but to submit. After having been the cause of relieving her situation at Major Milroy's, after having pointedly avoided her only a few days since on the high road, to have declined going to London in the same carriage with Miss Quilt would have been an act of downright brutality, which it was simply impossible to commit. Damn her! said Alan internally as he handed his traveling companion into an empty carriage officiously placed at his disposal before all the people at the station by the guard you sha not be disturbed sir the man whispered confidentially with a smile and a touch of his head Alan could have knocked him down with the utmost pleasure stop he said from the window I don't want the carriage! It was useless. The guard was out of hearing, the whistle blew and the train started for London. The select assembly of travellers' friends left behind on the platform congregated in a circle on the spot with the station master in the centre. The station master, otherwise Mr. Meg, was a popular character in the neighbourhood. He possessed two social qualifications which invariably impressed the average English mind. He was an old soldier and he was a man of few words. The conclave on the platform insisted on checking his opinion before it committed itself positively to an opinion of its own. A brisk fire of remarks exploded, as a matter of course on all sides, but everybody's view of the subject ended interrogatively in a question aimed point-blank at station-master's ears. She's got him, hasn't she? She'll come back Mrs. Armadale, won't she? He'd better have stuck to Miss Milroy, hadn't he? Miss Milroy stuck to him? She paid him a visit at the great house, didn't she? Nothing of the sort. It's a shame to take the girl's character away. She was caught in a thunderstorm close by who was obliged to give her shelter, and she's never been near the place since. Miss Gwilt's been there, if you like, with no thunderstorm to force her in. And Miss Gwilt's off with him to London in a carriage all to themselves, eh, Mr. Mac? Ah, he's a soft one, that Armadale, with all his money to take up with a red-haired woman a good eight or nine years older than he is. She's thirty if she's a day. That's what I say, Mr. Mac. What do you say? Older or younger, she'll rule the rose to Thorpe Ambrose. And I say, for the sake of the place, and for the sake of trade, let's make the best of it. And, Mr. Mac, the man of the world, sees it in the same light as I do, don't you, sir? Gentlemen, said Station Master, with his abrupt military accent, and his impenetrable military manner. She's a devilish fine woman, and when I was mister Armadale's age, it's my opinion if her fancy had laid that way, she might have married me. With that expression of opinion, the station master wheeled to the right and entrenched himself impregnably in the stronghold of his own office. The citizens of Thurpe Ambrose looked at the closed door, and gravely shook their heads. Mr. Meg had disappointed them. No opinion which openly recognizes the frailty of human nature is ever a popular opinion with mankind. It's as good as saying that any of us might have married her if we had been Mr. Armadale's age. Such was the general impression on the minds of the conclave when the meeting had been adjourned and the members were leaving the station. The last of the party to go was a slow old gentleman, with a habit of deliberately looking about him. Pausing at the door, this observant person stared up the platform and down the platform, and discovered in the later direction standing behind an angle of the wall, an elderly man in black, who had escaped the notice of everybody up to that time why bless my soul said the old gentleman advancing inquisitively by a step at a time it can't be mr bashwood it was mr bashwood mr bashwood whose constitutional curiosity had taken him privately to the station bent on solving the mystery of allen's sudden journey to london mr bashwood who had seen and heard, behind this angle in the wall, what everybody else had seen and heard, and who appeared to have been impressed by it in no ordinary way. He stood stiffly against the wall, like a man petrified, with one hand pressed on his bare head, and the other holding his head. He stood with a dull flush on his face, and a dull stare in his eyes, looking straight into the black depths of the tunnel outside the station. As if the train to London had disappeared in it but the moment before, is your head bad? asked the old gentleman, take my advice, go home and lie down, Mr. Bashwood listened mechanically with his usual attention and answered mechanically with his usual politeness. Yes, sir, he said in a low, lost tone, like a man between dreaming and waking i'll go home and lie down that's right rejoiced the old gentleman making for the door and take a pill mr bashwood take a pill five minutes later the porter charged with the business of locking up the station found mr bashwood still standing bareheaded against the wall and still looking straight into the black depths of the tunnel as if the train to london had disappeared in it but a moment since. ''Come, sir,'' said the porter, ''I must lock up. Are you out of sorts? Anything wrong with your inside? Try a drop of gin and bitters.'' ''Yes,'' said Mr. Bashwood, answering the porter, exactly as he has answered the old gentleman. ''I'll try a drop of gin and bitters.'' The porter shook him by the arm and led him out. ''You'll get it there,'' said the man, pointing confidentially to a public house, ''and you'll get it good.'' ''I shall get it there,'' echoed Mr. Bashwood, still mechanically repeating what was said to him, ''and I shall get it good.'' His will seemed to be paralysed. His action depended absolutely on what other people told him to do. He took a few steps in the direction of the public house, hesitated, staggered, and caught at the pillar of one of the station lamps near him. The portrait followed, and took him by the arm once more. Why, you've been drinking already! exclaimed the man, with a suddenly quickened interest in Mr. Bashwood's case. What was it? Beer. Mr. Bashwood, in his low, lost tones, echoed the last word. It was close on the porter's dinner-time. But when the lower orders of the English people believe they have discovered an intoxicated man, their sympathy with him is boundless. The porter let his dinner take its chance and carefully insisted Mr. Bashwood to reach the public house. Gin and bitters will put you on your legs again, whispered this Samaritan, setter right of the alcoholic disasters of mankind. If Mr. Bashwood had really been intoxicated, the effect of the porter's remedy would have been marvellous indeed, almost as soon as the glass was emptied the stimulant did its work. The long weakened nervous system of the deputy steward, prostrated for the moment by the shock that had fallen on it, rallied again like a weary horse under the spore. The dull flush on his cheeks, the dull stare in his eyes, disappeared simultaneously. After a momentary effort, he recovered memory enough of what had passed to thank the porter, and asked whether he would take something himself. The worthy creature instantly accepted a dose of his own remedy, in the capacity of a preventive, and went home to dinner as only those men can go home who are physically harmed by gin and bitters and morally elevated by the performance of a good action. Still strangely abstracted, but conscious now of the way by which he went, Mr. Bashwood left the public house a few minutes later, in his turn. He walked on mechanically, in his dreary black garments, Moving like a block on the white surface of the sun-brighted road, as midwinter had seen him move in the early days of Thorpe Ambrose when they had first met, arrived at the point where he had to choose between the way that led into the town and the way that led to the great house, he stopped, incapable of deciding and careless apparently even of making the attempt. I'll be revenged on her he whispered to himself, still absorbed in his jealous frenzy of rage against the woman who had deceived him. ''I'll be revenged on her,'' he repeated in louder tone, ''if I spend every half-penny I've got!'' Some women of the disorderly sort, passing on their way to the town, heard him. ''Hey, you old brute!'' They called out, with the measureless license of their class. Whatever she did, she served you right. The coarseness of the voice startled him, whether he comprehended the words or not. He shrank away from more interruption and more insult, into the quieter road that led to the great house. At the solitary place by the wayside he stopped and sat down. He took off his hat and lifted his youthful wig a little from his bald old head, and tried desperately to get beyond one immovable conviction which lay on his mind like lead, the conviction that Miss Gwilt had been purposely deceiving him from the first. It was useless. No effort would free him from that one dominant impression, and from the one answering idea that it had evoked, the idea of revenge. He got up again and put on his hat and walked rapidly forward a little way, then turned without knowing why, and slowly walked back again. If I had only dressed a little smarter, said the poor wretch helplessly, if I had only been a little bolder with her, she might have overlooked my being an old man. The angry feet returned on him. He clenched his clammy, trembling hands and shook them fiercely in the empty air. "I'll be revenged on her," he reiterated. "I'll be revenged on her if I spend every halfpenny I've got!" It was terribly suggestive of the hold she had taken on him that his vindictive sense of injury could not get far enough away from her to reach the man whom he believed to be his rival even yet. In his rage, as in his love, he was absorbed, body and soul, by Miss Gwilt. In a moment more, the noise of running wheels approaching from behind startled him. He turned and looked round. There was Mr. Pedgift, the elder, rapidly overtaking him in the gig, just as Mr. Pedgift had overtaken him once already, on that former occasion when he had listened under the window at the great house, and when the lawyer had bluntly charged him with feeling a curiosity about Miss Quilt. In an instant, the inevitable connection of ideas burst on his mind. The opinion of Miss Gwilt, which he had heard the lawyer express to Alan at Parting, flashed back into his memory side by side with mister Pedgift's sarcastic approval of anything in the way of the inquiry which his own curiosity might attempt. I may be even with her yet, he thought, if mister Pedgift will help me. Stop, sir! he called out desperately as the key came up with him. If you please, sir, I want to speak with you. Pedgift Senior slackened the pace of his fast-trotting mare without pulling up. ''Come to the office in half an hour,'' he said. ''I'm busy now.'' Without waiting for an answer, without noticing Mr. Bashwood's bow, he gave the mare the rein again and was out of sight in another minute. Mr. Bashwood sat down once more in a shady place by the roadside. He appeared to be incapable of feeling any slight but one unportable slight put upon him by Miss Gwilt. He not only declined to resent, he even made the best of Mr. Pedgift's unceremonious treatment of him. Half an hour, he said resignedly. Time enough to compose myself, and I want time. Very kind of Mr. Pedgift, though he mightn't have meant it. The sense of oppression in his head forced him once again to remove his hat. He sat with it on his lap, deep in thought, his face bent low, and the wavering fingers of one hand drumming absently on the crown of the head. If Mr. Pedgift, the elder, seeing him, as he sat now, could only have looked a little way into the future, the monotonously drumming hand of the deputy steward might have been strong enough feeble as it was, to stop the lawyer by the roadside. It was the worn, weary, miserable old hand of a worn, weary, miserable old man. But it was for all that, to use the language of Mr. Pedgift's own parting prediction to Ellen, the hand that was now destined to let the light in on Miss Quilt. End of chapter 12 Recording by Anna Simon from Portugal End of Armadale by Wilkie Collins